Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Luke Haskell Apologetic Show on the Four Persons Network. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, make way for the hammer of heretics himself. Luke Haskell. outline, Luke, you're a man after my own heart here. I, I, I firmly believe this. It's it's almost like the uh, Protestants built a castle over the river and then at the last minute realized that they had to go back across the river and didn't have a way to do it. So they just took whatever scrap material they had and built a bridge over the river because the most fundamental, important doctrine to Protestantism, and and I believe this firmly, the foundation that holds their entire ideology up is so it's the weakest argument that they have. It is the one doctrine that Protestants can't even make a plausible defense for, isn't that ironic that their whole castle stands on on a foundation of sand? Uh, Yeah, it's uh, basically they have to believe in it or they uh, can't confirm their very existence. Uh, Yet Protestants search scripture alone because it, it isn't in scripture. You know, I have this debate hundreds of times and, you know, people who come up with the, the come up against the true exegesis of the, the verses that Protestants normally use uh, when they come up the, the, with the, against the true exegesis, you know, it's They either turn to sophistry, they mm-hmm. attack the messenger or, you know, what's sad is they leave the conversation Protestant had to create new novel false exegesis concepts and definitions in order to separate from the original church. There is no other way to do it. There was 1,500 mm-hmm. years of truth. God establishes church for, for among other th- reasons, of course, as helps against our fallen nature. 1,500 years later, man created faith alone, scripture alone, in our fallen nature. This is why it appears that Catholics and Protestants are speaking a completely different language. It's because we are. Right. And, you know, I have noticed that when Protestants attempt to um, attempt to defend Sola Scriptura, they do it almost exclusively by straw man, almost exclusively. Um, if, if you, if you question the practical sufficiency of scripture. I mean, that's what basically what Sola Scriptura boils down to is the practical sufficiency of scripture that the the scripture alone by itself with no uh, outside aid is both materially and practically sufficient for salvation is what they argue. And if you argue against that premise by saying that you're arguing against the inerrancy of Scripture, they'll claim that you're arguing against the the uh, inspiration of Scripture. They'll claim that you are arguing with God himself. They will do anything but defend their position that Scripture 
alone is both materially and practically sufficient because in the end of the day, Luke, the the the, the statement or the, the premise that Scripture is materially and practically sufficient it, it's absurd on its face. It's it's a it's a, a, a the worst kind of pretzel logic. Yeah, I mean, of course, Catholics believe that Scripture is divinely inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God, but how many interpretations are? I mean, is yours one? How do you determine yours is the one? Mm-hmm. But this this process is why there's thousands and thousands of denominations. Because, again, man, uh, God establishes church to help us overcome our, our fallen nature. 1,500 years later, man created sola scripture in our Anything that man creates uh, is, is going to end up in entropy. Uh, entropy meaning going from organization to disorganization. And the results are obvious. This is why modern Protestant, Protestant does not only look different from the faith of the disciples, the apostles, but it's worlds apart from it. It's not even close. The disciples now, and apostles live the Catholic faith. Yep. Let's take the last point that you made as a as a stepping point because you're absolutely right. It's not what God transmits in Scripture that we argue with. We do believe the Scriptures are inerrant, but we they they can only be inerrant when they are properly translated and properly exegeted. If they're not properly translated and properly exegeted, then it's what God says is infallible, but what you hear isn't. If what you if what you hear is different from what God says, and to use this as a stepping point, you bring up the great point that sometimes we speak the same words. But Protestants have assigned radically different definitions to these words than than what was classically meant when the scriptures were written. Why don't you use that as a as a starting point? Well, a clear example is how the words uh, faith, grace, and works were manipulated away from how the early church lived these things. I mean, there is a difference in the way they see in the way they image all three of these words, then Catholics uh, understand them. And Catholics understanding can be traced all the way back to the beginning of Christianity. Uh, Let's start with faith. We know the apostles were Jews. They never understood belief outside of obedience of faith to a covenant relationship with God. This is obvious. They lived under the Mosaic law, which was a covenant relationship. Uh, Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So we have to look for law still. God is not going to eliminate law. So belief was always acted on inside a covenant oath. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul reminds us when he writes in uh, Romans 1.5, by whom we receive grace and apostles for obedience to the faith in all nations, whom are you also called of Jesus Christ. Paul's writing living the narrow road of transforming grace, the sacramental life, in obedience to the faith with bishops, priests, and deacons. We know this through act, including Paul calling those in the church to obey the leaders of the church. In Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 13, Paul says, Obey your prelates to be subject to them, for they watch as being a render account to your souls that they may do this with joy and not with grief, for this is not expedience for you. We touched this uh, touch on this last week. The prelates mm-hmm. are rulers of the church, including bishops. It would also be foolish to think that Paul would be referring to obeying any prelates of any church, but only the one church of one doctrine that entered into the covenant relationship with God at Pentecost. You define the true church by faith and practice. The Catholic the faith and practice goes back 2,000 years. So this is the church Paul's when he calls us to obedience. John 3.16 has to be a summation of belief because in belief includes obedience. This is uh, you know, words that Protestants use over and over and over and over again. 
but they right. do not use the word belief as the early church lived. Right. So what what they're essentially doing, Luke, is is they're separating the the heat from the fire. That's what they're trying to do. And uh, I mean, uh, every every winter time, every Christmas time, when you flip through the channels on your TV, you can see that. Have you ever seen that Yule log channel? Okay. Uh-huh. Well, it, yeah. yeah, it looks it looks like fire, but it's not fire because there's no heat. And uh, it, it's the same thing with faith. Uh, they created a, a a a a counterfeit faith that looks like faith and sounds like faith, but it's not really faith because, in fact, G, uh, Jesus in the Bible called it lip service. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So if your lips have proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ, but your heart hasn't made the trip, how can you call it genuine faith? And and to say that you're safe, and then, and then not only redefine faith in those terms, so they redefine faith as being an assent to faith, a verbal and intellectual assent, assent to faith, and then turn around and say that that verbal and intellectual incentive is enough to save. Well, that just nullifies the justice of God, doesn't it? Uh, very much so. And uh, uh, when it comes to uh, you know our structure of the authority with priests, bishops, and deacons, Protestants look at submission to these people as being unbiblical. But it's, 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 it's the actual Bible that tells us about this submission. And we have to think all the sacraments are in Scripture. Priests, bishops, and, and uh, deacons are in Scripture. We're called to obey these people. Why? Because everything that God does for us is to return our souls to the state they were in in the Garden of Eden. So this spiritual practice is because God knows what we need better than better than ourselves. He put in place the spiritual practice where we go from in the Garden of Eden, you, you will be as gods, to a state of humility, and we go from uh, the disobedience of taking the apple to the obedience of even belief. When Jesus says, "This is my body." This is obedience of belief. When Paul says, obey your prelates, this is obedience of belief because it is a practice of focusing on what is holy and humility. And these are things that, you know, that Satan hates. And so in this humility comes a deeper wisdom because when you also have faith alone, in uh, much of the sense, you remove the fear of God. And the proverb says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is prudent. Right. And they try to create a construct where it's it's just me and God. I, I don't need the church. I don't need the religious leaders. It's it's just between me and God. And I, and I can deal with God directly. Well, how well did that work out for Dathan and Korah? Didn't seem to work out very well for them, did it? Nope, not not at all. They went against the authority of the church, and I think Jude's actually referring to the the baptized Pharisees, who were trying to force Mosaic law on the Gentiles in the church. And right. this is uh, this is part of the refresher when we talked about faith, works, and grace. The we're talking about works now. Uh, Protestant had to step back from seeing scripture as a whole and instead had to isolate specific verses, uh, applying more of a literalist approach instead of a more honest uh, literal approach. All right, uh, hold there, time, time out just one second. For those who may be tuning in for the first time that are not, impo- uh, are not familiar with those terms, I think that's a very, very important distinction that you make there between literalist and literal. Could you expand on that a little bit for the benefit of, of somebody that's never heard heard that said that way? Well, Protestants, because when, when they had to separate the church, 
you know, the, the, the mind uh, tends to, you know, create things to support what they want to believe. So when Paul says faith without, uh, or, or when, when Paul says uh, we're saved by faith, not works of the law, they take this word works and they isolate it to a literalist approach, meaning just just the word instead of mm-hmm. the, the literal approach where you take in the whole encompassing image of the early church. Right. So, so let me take a stab at this just, just to kind of emphasize the point. Um, the literalist approach is not always – the approach that expresses the true meaning of the passage. And I'll give you an example. Luke, if I told you, if, if, if you, you, you saw that I was feeling down or wasn't, wasn't, you know, wasn't doing so well or whatever, and you said, Hey, what's wrong? And I said, Luke, I'm carrying the, I'm carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. Now, if you apply the literalist um, <laughs> approach to what I just said, it's crazy. For me to claim that I'm carrying the entire weight of the world on my shoulders, so it's it's absurd to apply a literalist approach to that. You have to examine the context of what's being said. In that particular case, I'm speaking hyperbole, and not all cases where the literalist approach applies uh, does not apply are hyperbole. But I just gave one example of where where you have to examine, like you said, the 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 context, and when we talk about context, we talk about linguistic context. We talk about cultural context. Uh, there's all kinds of, of things that go into determining what the passage means. So you may have, like you said, works in one passage means one thing, and works in another passage means another thing. You have to identify who he's writing to and what he's actually saying. So please continue. Yeah, uh, other examples are called no man father, which is kind of ridiculous because he also said called no man rabbi, even though the apostles said they were teachers. Rabbi means teacher. Another example is one mediator. Place it in the context from the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Paul is telling Timothy that we should offer prayer, supplication, intercession, and thanksgiving, which from which you get the word Eucharist for all men because there's one mediator between God and man. The early church understood what Paul was saying was he was talking about the liturgy of the, you know, of the word in the Holy Mass. So mediator is not in the context of prayer. It's in the context of our high priest with his body presenting himself to the Father for the sins of the world and the true Passover. So just, just a couple examples. There is in Scripture reference to an actual law of works. And this has nothing to do with works in general. Uh, in Galatians 2.16, Paul writes, But knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, we also believe in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no flesh is, is justified. Well, no flesh is justified. The ceremonial law, the Pharisees were trying to force on Gentile converts. In Romans 3.27, Paul is writing to uh, you know, a group in Rome, members of the church. Again, people have already been baptized in the church, living the sacramental faith. Some of these were the baptized Pharisees, the Judaizers. Others were Gentiles. Uh, both were in, in Rome at the time. He says, whereas thy bo- by boasting is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but the law of faith. The literal law of works was the boast of the baptized Pharisees. The literal law of works is a ceremonial law of Moses and circumcision. Again, baptized Pharisees boasted about keeping the law of works, believing they were closer to God than the Gentiles in the church were because they kept the law of works. The law of faith is obedience to faith of the new covenant. Uh, Paul goes, uh, has, has a problem with the Galatians also. In Galatians 3, he says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who be very, before your very eyes, Christ is portrayed as crucified before you. And he goes on saying that, uh, you know, basically uh, you, you weren't saved by the works of the, works, uh, uh, of the law, uh, but by faith. He doesn't say faith alone. 
But the first thing he did was remind the Galatians the spiritual nature of Christianity because the, uh, in the Mass, Christ is portrayed as crucified before us spiritually. We actually go back spiritually, mystically, to the cross in the Mass. We're not sacrificed over and over again, but the second part of the eternal covenant, which is first the, the, there is the sacrifice in Jewish understanding, and there is the presentation of the sacrifice to the Father. So this is what Paul is referring to in Galatians, and he's referring to this, saying, you people are in the law, you know, uh, you're missing the, the greatest mystery in the universe. Right. Now, now <clears throat> let's get into grace, because I don't know how many times I've heard Protestants say that, Oh, grace, grace, grace is nothing more than God's unmerited favor. That's 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 all it is. That's uh, that's baloney. <laughs> in fact, Paul says himself in Ephesians three that uh, by God's uh, by God's grace, um, God gave us His mercy, uh, His mercy according to His God gave us His grace according to His good goodness. So if or something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing, and I can't remember the exact verse. But basically, in order to see that verse as grace being un, unmerited favor, basically the verse would be saying that God gave us His unmerited favor according to His unmerited favor. <laughs> that would be the only way that you could <laughs> interpret the verse. Um, but grace is much more, and Paul calls himself a dispenser of grace. Now, how how could Paul, an apostle, be a dispenser of God's unmerited favor. No, grace is, is, is much more. They've really done damage to this one. And and they do particular damage to this one in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, because that's not only talking about grace, but it's talking about a specific, uh, very significant type of grace. So let's talk about what grace is. And 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 the fact that it's synergistic, not monergistic, and what exactly does grace? Well, to mention to mention Paul first, what you were just discussing, Paul says, consider us as as as, uh, as uh, ministers of the of the of the mysteries of God. Now, Irenaeus said all the apostles were priests. For the word mystery, we get mysterion, sacramentum, sacrament. So Paul is saying, consider us priests as dispensers of the sacraments of Christ. So right there, we add that to what you just said about grace. Paul is a minister of grace through being in the body of Christ as an ordained. So uh, as again, this is the uh, grace is far from ambiguous. The prophecy fulfilled laws written in our hearts, as opposed to the Mosaic law, uh, that was rule, fear, and temporal punishment. For people of hardened hearts, Jews only, is grace given freely, and this is in order uh, to be saved through following conscience. Uh, Romans 2.14 says the Gentiles do what the law requires without ever knowing the law. Their conscience bears witness. Something happened uh, during the time of Christ where it was like a new heaven and a new earth spiritually, where there was a conscience that came upon our, you know, the world. Um, in Hebrews, Paul says, For this is the testament which I will make to the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will give my laws into their mind and in their hearts. I will write them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This transformation from rule, fear, and temporal punishment to the conscience through and, and, and making that burden light through the image of the love of the cross in itself is grace given freely. Baptism is grace given freely. Baptism is redemption through destruction of original sin and entrance into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. Nobody entered the church without baptism. Therefore, baptism is entrance into the chosen people. In First Peter, Peter says, where, where unto baptism being like form now saveth you. So baptism is salvific. Protestantism falsely reads Titus 3.5 in its goal of separation from the original church. 
person believes that this verse proves faith alone, uh, but like many other examples of false exegesis in the Protestant, it, it actually proves the opposite. If we read it, uh, uh, I'll go ahead and read it. Mm-hmm. But when the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, not by works of justice which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the lava of regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost, whom he hath poured forth upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we may be heirs according to hope of life everlasting. It is a faithful saying, and these things I will have thee affirm. And listen to this. He says that they who believe in God may be careful to excel in good works. You know, so, it, it's, it's very important that you that you focused on that part. But the other part is that it says being justified by his grace. Now, if grace is nothing more than unmerited favor, and then how can we be justified? If you're looking at the word just uh, just uh, justify, it hearkens to justice. So if we believe that God is a God of perfect justice. He cannot, he cannot justify a person who is not repentant in his sin and seeking to do what is right. So if a person is still content to live in his sin, that person cannot be justified because that person, by the biblical definition, is living unjustly. So, Luke, what they're actually teaching is that God justifies the unjust. Well, they're still insisting on being unjust. I call that blasphemy. What do you What do you call that? Yeah, well, I mean, Peter says it outright. You know, after in the upper room, the apostles and the whole group was infused with the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. So it's. Uh, it goes without saying, if there's no, you know, change in, in in consciousness to turn away from sin and being holy and to living uh, a holy life, uh, it, it's uh, uh, scripture that says, you know, Christ said, be holy for I am holy. So this holiness, what does that mean? It means set apart for God. And we do not come into the flesh of Christ, the church, the royal priesthood, redemption from original sin through our own justices, but through the true law of regeneration and renovation of the Holy Spirit, as Titus 3.5 is saying. Of course, after we are called to always be careful to excel in good works, uh, but what did the Levitical priests do after they washed in the laver? I mean, Paul is leading us here to a very deep spiritual insight of of the meeting tent and the meeting tent is fulfilled in christ and his church and it's and and it's something that he must have taught the the early church but because of the sacredness he does not see these things directly but gives insight to those who are already uh, participating in the mass they entered the veil which paul refers to as the flesh of christ so in hebrews 19 19 after washing in the laver, Paul refers to the laver, and the early church understood the laver to be a type for baptism. Uh, in Hebrews 19, Paul says, Having therefore, brethren, a confidence in entering into the holies by the blood of Christ, a new and living way, which he hath dedicated to us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and the high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from evil conscience, and our bodies washed with clean water. The washed with clean water right there is showing baptism gives entrance into the flesh of Christ. And, of course, because the new covenant is a marriage between a perfect groom and an imperfect bride, uh, the flesh of Christ is also the church. And Paul adds to this image here in Ephesians. He says, For no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, as also Christ does the church, because we are members of him, body of his flesh and of his bones. For this while a man leave his mother and a mother, uh, and 
and mother and shall cleave to his wife. They shall be in one flesh. This is a great sacrament, but I speak of Christ and the church. This is the mystical body of Christ entered into through baptism. And that is faith, grace, and works as understood in the early church. Luke, I think it's very, very clear that Luther did not understand grace. And that was why he was so tormented. He he could not – he was a tormented soul, and he could not overcome his own sin, his own struggles, his own depravity. I mean, he, you know, he, he struggled with alcoholism. He just struggled with many vices. And, I mean, it's. I think it's pretty clear that he didn't understand this concept of grace, and he didn't understand that no matter how – this one thing Protestants don't understand about Catholics is 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 we know, it's not our efforts. We're we're not putting faith in our own efforts, uh, and they think that we are. It's God working through us, uh, and grace is the means, and we are the conduit. But uh, Luther clearly did not understand that, right? Yeah, I, I love that song. I, I think it was John Michael Talbot. We sing that God has no hands now but ours, no voice now but ours, no feet now but ours. And uh, only God is good. So any good that we do is not of our doing. It's an expression of that grace and that love of Christ through us. You know, and, yet by, our, and yet by our free will, we can thwart that grace. Oh, Definitely. No one can uh, keep us from the love of, of Christ, you know, is what the scripture says and what Protestants use over and over again. And I add, accept our own free will. Right. So uh, when uh, in Titus 3.5, when, when Paul was mentioning uh, saved by the law of regeneration, and this is grace given freely, the early church picked up on that law and uh, I'll, re- I'll read you from Hippolytus, and he's writing about 217 on this. He says, The Father of immortality sent the immortal Son and Word into the world, who came to man in order to wash him with the water and the Spirit, and he begetting us again to incorruption of soul and body, breathed into us the Spirit of life, and endued us with an incorruptible panoply. If, therefore, man has become immortal, he will also be God. And if he is made God by water and the Holy Spirit, after the regeneration of the laver, he is found to be also joint heirs with Christ after the resurrection from the dead. Wherefore, I preach to this effect, come all ye kindreds of the nations to the immortality of the baptism. Now, when you read that at face value, it almost sounds like blasphemy, which says man has become immortal. He will also be God. Explain why that doesn't sound like what it, uh, that isn't, he isn't saying what it sounds like he's saying. He's not saying that we're going to become divine. What he's saying is that we will actually participate in the divine life, which is grace, right? Well, exactly. But, uh, and when we move from the lava of regeneration into the veil, which is the flesh of Christ, we are spiritually uniting with the divine. And in First, first Peter, Peter says that uh, uh, when, he, when he discusses this promise of Abraham filled, he says we become partakers of divine nature. It's not that we become gods. It's that because we unite with God. And this is one of the reasons why we can fall from grace and separate ourselves from God through more sin. Because this union with God uh, that we have through baptism is also, uh, you know, because we walk in the way, uh, the, uh, the early church, the, uh, the Protestants used the phrase the way and think that was the name of the early church. No, it wasn't. It was the practice uh, of the church it was a sacramental life and obedience to the faith was the way the early right. church in fact they even refer to confession as part of the way so, so if i say that uh 
So, so if I say that Route 81 is the is the way to Southwest Virginia, <laughs> the the route to Southwest Virginia is not the way. It's Route 81. <laughs> <laughs> yep, pretty much. I mean, it's a and it's just these little sleight of hand. No, it's sad, but it's kind of funny sometimes too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you think about this, Luke, I mean, you when you step back and you really look at the big picture and you really look at all of it, that we would have uh, a a an opportunity to actually participate in the divine life and to throw that away by committing a mortal sin is a is a an act of ingratitude on a on a scale that's just unimaginable when you really when you really think about it. I mean what what unbelievable ingratitude on our part. Yeah and, and, and if you I mean we got so many gifts to keep us from sin. I mean, if you actually believe you're taking partaking of the glorified body and body of Christ, His glorified essence that does not conform to time and space, in the form of this bread and wine, and you take that into your in, in, into your body, and therefore nurturing your soul through the understanding, how much harder is it to go out and commit sin again? If yeah. you go to confession. And you but, hear, I absolve but, you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. How much of a person who is, is person is sincerely trying to overcome his sin, falling into uh, the the same addictive behaviors over and over and over and over again habitually. Oftentimes, that person, pride is the issue. Pride is the issue because they're determined. They're going to beat this sin by their own effort, and it, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> That's just flat out. So, so that person, their pride is actually blocking them from availing themselves of the of the supernatural grace and help that they need. That they need by going to more frequent confessions, by going to adoration, uh, by praying the rosary and the and, and the sacramentals and all the additional things, all those additional helps that you talk about, the intercessions of the saints, all these things that are at our disposal. Uh, but if it's if it's me against the devil, that's a fight I'm going to lose. And I think that's the biggest stumbling block for a lot of Catholics is they think this is a fight that they have to fight themselves. That the it's the old adage of. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've heard somebody say, "Well, you know, I, I need to, I need to get strong, strong enough before I can go back to confession." No, you got it backwards. Okay, you, you don't, you don't get strong so you can go to confession. You go to confession so you can get strong. But as ridiculous as it sounds, Luke, I've actually heard people make that argument. Uh, and my, you know, I've had habitual sins. And uh, one thing that was, you know, just a huge defense against that is going from one Eucharist to the other, knowing that all venial sins have been washed away by the gospel, by the holy water, by our confession of our sins as as an entire body, uh, the presentation of the Eucharist with the host of heaven. And going from one Eucharist to the other, if I'm not going daily Mass, from one Sunday to the other. And, you know, focusing on that purity that you've been given by grace, that gift. And it, it, it's, it's an amazing defense. And if you're Protestant and you cannot, you know, you cannot fully understand these things without experiencing them. It's, it's just impossible. Right. Right. Well, one of the things that I've learned from the church fathers, from a lot of the books that I've read from from uh, so many saints, is there are two weapons that the devil cannot fight against, and that's obedience and humility. 
And if you're obedient and you're humble, you will eventually um, uh, succeed. I, I heard a, a saint, uh, I think it was St. Louis de Montfort that said this, that if you if you are a, a, a habitual sinner, but you're also a habitual uh, prayer of the rosary, you will eventually give up one. You can the both cannot cannot endure. You will give up one or the other, uh, depending on which one you persist in. That's a very very strong and encouraging thing because what he's saying is if you persist in the rosary. You will conquer your sin. You cannot continue in sin and and the rosary. Um, one will have victory over the other. And the, I mean, the rosary is just one example. So, um, all right. So, getting back to what you were saying about how they've manipulated words, uh, even the understanding of the word belief. Uh, go, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. What, what during when we went from uh, basically old English uh, to modern English. You know, there's a change. I, I found this really fascinating. This really opened up just a, a world of understanding uh, in, in Scripture to me. You know, uh, one day I'm looking at the word faith, you know, a certain way, and the next day I'm looking at it, you know, something just totally different, so so completely encompassing. And uh, I first saw this in Marthaler's book, uh, The Creed, and uh with what I had previously presented on Sola Scriptura and with what we have discussed today, it should be clear that with Marthala's understanding of the etymology of belief, it, well, it should be clear that when proper, honest exegesis is applied to Scripture, you should see that there is not one word in Scripture that goes against the Catholic faith. It really can't. It's, it's a Catholic book. So if we read from Marthala, it says the etymology Etymologically, belief, believe, is related to a broad range of familiar words. Some archaic, like life, dear, willing. Some still in use, like beloved and loved. The history of believe in its various forms, ranging from Old English, beloved, to the early modern English, cinnamon, beloved, through the 17th century misspelling. There's a change that gave us believe in, with I-E instead of believe, B-E-L-E-E-V-E. It's a chronicle of its gradual change in meaning in the 14th century about the time of Wycliffe. Important, uh, and during this time, uh, important changes uh, began to take place that marked the transition from Middle English to Modern English. A new word faith was coming into use as the English form of the Latin fides, Early evidence of the transition can be seen in two versions of the English Bible attributed to Wycliffe, both based on the Latin Vulgate. In the first, belief, B-I-L-E-F-E, in the Old English, translates fides, whereas in the second, faith, appears to be in a number of places. By the 17th century, the transition was virtually complete. The 1611 King James authorized version used the word faith 246 times while using belief only once. Mm. And so there's uh, a change in theological language where faith became more of an intellectualist sense. So uh, when you look at uh, uh, different dictionaries and stuff uh, for, for, for faith, you see this more, um, as we discussed earlier, when we went back to the word fide and uh, how you explain that the other word is used for, you know, more of an action of faith. But right. the, the, the fide that uh, uh, was in the 14th, 15th century was modernized into this intellectual ascent away from belief and we can see how it is completely contradictory to Paul's words of obedience to the faith. Right. So thus, belief in God no longer means as much as faith in God. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and, and, and all of this creates imagery in the mind when you read Scripture. And if you're reading from the Protestant perspective, 
of faith, grace, and works, you're not going to get close to the true nature of Scripture. And it's almost a diabolical deception. I, I, you know, I, I, I think it's, it, it's quite possible this was a diabolical deception. Oh, because sure. all Satan needs is a tiny fork in the road in time. Yeah, and uh, you know, that's that's the thing that uh, that's that's the thing about Satan is he's gonna he's gonna present it in such a way that it looks like the real thing, but it's but it's not. Uh, if it's if it's if it's easily spotted as a counterfeit, people will reject it, you know, openly. But uh, if it, if it looks like a, like the real thing, you know, um, people are easily deceived, and, and clearly they are because uh, to you know to say that a person is is saved by intellectual uh, and verbal assent to faith it, it's, it's, it goes against everything that we see in the New Testament because every one of the apostles were tested. Their faith was tested. I mean, for the first 300 years of the church, um, to be a Christian meant death, and not just and and not a quick death or an easy death. Oftentimes, uh, so you know, this idea that uh, you know that that if if you believe in Jesus and that's enough and say that you believe in Jesus and that's that's enough then then what what was the purpose of all that martyrdom what was the purpose of all that spilling of blood that it, it seems to be gratuitous doesn't it yeah and, and why did God use the phrase the narrow road he says we must take the with the narrow road because wide is the road that leads to destruction well look at what you know the image of the early church and you could bend to surmise, you could begin to surmise what the narrow road is. All seven sacraments are in Scripture. The Holy Mass is in Scripture. The obedience to the faith and priests, bishops, and uh, you know, deacons are in Scripture. So here's your narrow road, the way of the sacramental life and obedience to the faith, and wide is the road that leads to destruction. Right. Now, so why is this not going all the way back to the other extreme that Paul was talking about, about the Judaizers and those who were bragging about keeping the law? So if, if it has to do with works and actions and everything, why does it not go to the other extreme? And I think that the, the tie in there is when you talk about purity of heart, purity of heart, love, purity of intention – uh, it, it's not so much the accomplishment of the work itself or the greatness of the work itself, but the love and devotion and the charity that the work is done with is the most important factor. And St. Teresa of, of Lisieux was, was a great teacher of that. And, and you had something here that you want to say about the chapter 29. Uh, let's see. What are we referring to? Let us also draw near to God in purity of heart. Yeah, we're looking at uh, we're at, we're actually looking at Clement now. <laughs> when we first yeah. started the discussion three uh, uh, three episodes ago, basically we were we were going to discuss the uh, church fathers and how they understood the word faith. And uh, at the time, I said I, I think we need to build this up first. Because we have to truly see how the word was understood in the early church. And I think we could build, uh, use this now. Because uh, Protestants off, off, uh, often read Clement against Catholics. But they read it from the perspective of their understanding of faith. And i give you an example. One of the, one, uh, uh, one of the quotes they use. Uh, Clement writes, And we too, being called by his will to Christ Jesus are not justified by ourselves or by our own wisdom or understanding our godliness, our works, which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which from the beginning, almighty God has justified all men to whom we glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, take into consideration everything we've said so far about faith and works. Number one, Catholics do not believe in a works-based salvation. We believe in a transforming grace salvation. How do we get to transforming grace where the foundation is faith? So there's nothing in what Clement is saying here that goes against our belief. And if Protestants were going to continue to take these verses as they understand it, then when we move on to other verses of Clement, uh, you're going to find that uh, their understanding begins to contradict Clement. So in chapter 29 uh, of, of Clement's letter, Clement writes, let us then draw near to him with holiness of spirit, lifting up pure and undefiled hands unto him, loving our gracious and merciful father who has made us partakers in the blessings of his elect. For thus it is written, when the Most High divided the nations, when he scattered the sons of Adam, he fixed the bounds of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. His people, uh, people of Jacob became the portion of the Lord, and Israel the lot of, the, uh, of inheritance. Uh, and in another place, the scripture says, Behold, the Lord takes unto himself a nation out of the midst of the nations, as a man takes first fruits of his threshing floor, and from that nation shall come forth the most holy. So key in on the elect. So the elect are those living obedience to the faith in the sacramental life through faith. If this were not true, then Clement will be contradicting himself when he said, Behold, the Lord comes, and his reward is before his face, to render to every man according to his work. He exhorts us, therefore, with our whole heart to attend to this, that we be not lazy or slothful in any good work, let our boasting and our confidence be in him. Let us submit ourselves to his will. Let us consider the whole multitude of his angels, how they stand ever ready to minister at his will. Let us therefore join with those to whom grace is given by God. Let us clothe ourselves in concord, being humble and self-controlled, ourselves far from all backbiting and slander, being justified by works and not words, why was our father Abraham blessed? Was it not because of his deeds of justice and truth wrought in faith? So the only way this makes sense is if our understanding of faith is correct and Protestantism is wrong. Right. So Clement also lived. Go ahead. And and it ha- and the Bible is the same way because if the Protestant understanding of faith makes sense then then the entire idea of of mercy doesn't make any sense why 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 does god need to be merciful if if all we need to do is have faith then our sins don't mean anything why would we ask god for mercy and confession is god's gift of mercy what's that and confession is god's gift of mercy Right. I, I mean, it it it, is, it takes the entire the, the 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 message of the New Testament, as I read it, is that God's mercy must be reconciled with His justice. That His justice must be satisfied. Uh, and there's two ways that you can satisfy God's justice. You can satisfy God's justice by repentance and appeal to His mercy. Or you can satisfy his justice by spending eternity in hell. Um, I would recommend you go with door A on this one, but you do what you want, you know. But that's the message of the gospel. Um, this this idea that, well, all I need to have is faith, but I don't need to repent. I don't need to turn away from my sin. It's basically, and, you know, I've been accused, this is funny. Luke, I've been accused of erecting a straw man when I say this, when I say that sola fide or once saved, always saved is a license to sin. Oh, you, you're, you're, you're creating a straw man. We're not arguing a license to sin. Well, no, I'm, I'm not saying that you're explicitly arguing it. But what I am saying is it is taking your position to consequence. That's not a straw man. It's taking their argument to its logical consequence. If there is no more penalty for sin, that's a license to sin. 
or any any way you want to couch it, any way you want to, any terms you want to put it in, uh, am, am I right or am I stressing the point too much? Uh, no, uh, I, I think you're right. But, uh, but I also think with their image of faith, they get confused because they don't see the general redemption. They do not see that the Holy Mass is the true Passover for the general redemption of the world. So they only see one type of redemption as an individual. And then they falsely take, take these words about, uh, about faith and grace and works, and they create this construct. And, and, they, and they simply end up there. And I could see how it happens. I mean, when you, you know, uh, when you're born into Protestantism and you take these phrases and these words and you apply them to Scripture and you're, you're reading them into Scripture, I, I, I can honestly see why it happens. So they, they basically look at Scripture through the lens of, of their predetermined Protestant conclusions. And it, it, it just becomes a circular mess because the premise is constantly read into, into the – the conclusion is constantly read into the premise anytime they encounter a scripture. They, they, they're looking at that lens through the through – the, uh, they're looking at that scripture through the lens of making that scripture fit their paradigm rather than exegeting the passage for what it actually says. Yeah, it's 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 a it, it is it is really really wild and and uh, you know I, I use the word demonic and I hate to use the word demonic and Protestantism at the same time, you know they're not you know uh, you know demonic, but the path that they were put on the the intelligence the preternatural intelligence of Satan and how he put people on this path, you know, is demonic. You know, but they're not culpable for, for you know, you know, for that unless they understand it's demonic and keep going in the way of demonic. But it's, uh, I mean, when you look at the difference, I mean, I, I go back to this. I say Protestant does not look even close to the faith of the disciples and the apostles. I mean, it's it's just... And it is so far away. We have the true Passover that we celebrate with the hosts of heaven. And they have their feelings of the Holy Spirit and their, their, you know, their understanding, their individualistic, uh, you know, understanding of faith. And it is just, it, it's like it's, we're on a different planet. Over 2,000 years, this is how far we've gone. But now it's gone even further. I mean, you start with the church, and you start with establishing the authority of the church. And from there, we went to, you know, Martin Luther and faith alone, scripture alone. And this influenced the false age of enlightenment, where we ended up with people like Nietzsche and Voltaire, you know, Nietzsche saying God is dead. And from there, we went to, you know, liberalism. We went to wokeism. And even at the same time, there's this parallel path where modern Protestantism is back actually falling into a new age philosophy that is only yeah. based on emotional response. Yep. Hey, Luke, I'm sorry I got us off track so many times tonight with so many questions. Um, I guess in, in the next episode, we're, we're going to, I know you've got a lot of material here and in the next episode, I'm going to be quiet more and let you, Finish up because I know we've got a lot of material that we want to cover here. So um, we're just a, we're we're at the end of the live stream now. So um, we'll finish this up next Friday, folks. I promise. Next Friday will be the last episode on this subject, and then we'll move to a new subject. So, uh, Luke, would you end us with a prayer, please? We'll, we'll say in our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses and we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Father, Amen. Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. God bless you, Luke, and you have a wonderful weekend and we'll 
we're going to wrap this subject up uh, next Friday, and then we'll move on to our next subject. God bless. Have a wonderful weekend. Sounds good.